Well, welcome back, everybody, to Amongst the Table podcast for Season 2. I am one of your hosts, Jonathan Crabtree, ready to share Amongst the Table for change amongst the world. So pull up a chair and join us at our table as we share amongst the table for change amongst the world. change amongst the world. Uh, I'm actually in a different venue today. I'm here on site at Trinity College in the community hub, so you'll probably hear uh, some folks coming around, walking around, maybe some background noises and whatnot. So that's just how it is on a Friday afternoon here at Trinity College. And uh, today I've got with me uh, one of our uh, new friends, Tom um, Butler. What? Bolter. Bolter. Okay. Yeah. See, there you go. I'm already. I'm, I'm such a great friend that I always say this is wrong. His name wrong. Uh, so Tom is uh, sitting here, and he might chime in or say something or nod his head or fall asleep. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what happens. You want to say hey? Hello. <laughs> there it is, folks. Tom in the flesh. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about. Uh, some of the marks of the revival, of the Methodist revival. So I'm just going to share some things that I've been noticing in John Wesley's journal that, uh, that are consistently like kind of showing up. And so maybe, you know, someone who's from the UK, maybe you could give me some insight on some of these observations, like, because I think it's, I think it's interesting and I'll, I'll, I'll make a, It'll make sense in a moment. Um, but first, I want to define a phrase, historical context. And for historical context, uh, I think it has three things. A people, a place, and a particular time. Now, you can obviously add you know, tons of other elements to a historical context and define it like that. But for me, a historical context, when you're looking at history, I think it's important to know who you're talking about um, what time, like what century or what time frame, and where they are. So, you know, a time, so people, a place, and a time frame. So our historical context is the Methodist movement slash revival, uh, 18th century England. Okay, so that's our historical context. And our particular person is John Wesley. That's what I'm, that's what I'm researching. Anglican, uh, uh, ordained Anglican, and ordained in the Anglican Church, uh, but never had a parish, never served anywhere. He um, had a conversion experience, so to speak, uh, 1738, May 24, and he was uh, he was he'd been a, you know preaching and teaching all his you know most of his adult life, but he never felt the love of God in this in such a way where he felt his assurance uh, an assurance of salvation, 
And so that's what happened on May 24th, 1738, uh, quarter till nine, he records that he felt his heart strangely warmed. So maybe you've heard that before. Was that when he was reading Luther's commentary? Yeah, so, he, went, so he was at a Quaker meeting, a Moravian meeting in, on Fetterlane, um, and he had a, and there was a Fetterlane society there, I mean, a society at Fetterlane, and they were reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And <laughs> of all things, that's where his heart was strangely warm. So if you think, uh, you know, if there are any preachers listening and you think um, you have a chance for people, you think people might have a, a, a strange, strangely warm experience with your sermons, why don't you try reading the preface <laughs> to a commentary and see what happens? <laughs> So, all right, so that's John Wesley, 1738, and from that moment till he died in 1790, 91, I think, he just, he, he was on, he was just, he was wild. He just went, he just went nuts, and, and it was part of this whole evangelical revival that happens. And a few things that I've noticed throughout his journal that I'm, I'm only, have read three volumes, or in the third volume now, I've noticed some consistent things that keep happening. And so I'm calling them these marks of a revival. And and there's I think there's actually, there's plenty of material out there written about marks of a revival um, and various revivals that happen throughout history. But here's, here's what I'm seeing. The first thing that stands out to me consistently is he records the weather, and not just weather conditions, but he records like, um, when he travels from city to, or town to town, village to village, he talks about the weather. So I guess like weather is not a very big changing thing here in the UK is what I've been told. So, I mean, is that right? Like it's... Well, the funny thing is, I think, yeah, we have the kind of the blandest weather of almost anywhere in the world, but people love talking about it more than anywhere else. So that's, okay. So yeah. that's... So that like is a, a thing. Like an English-ism yeah. or something. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So he talks, so I find it funny that he's like... It snowed really hard today, <laughs> and my horse fell over, and I couldn't go any further. But we pressed on, or something like yeah. that, or like. It, or, and what, but what, I, what what he does sometimes, he says he was preaching, and he would preach three to five times a day yeah. for decades. You know, I, that's just I can't I can't imagine that three to five times a day, and there were times where they would be outside mostly, and it would be, hey Ben, you can join us if you want. Sorry, mate, I've uh, got a meeting. All right, that's fine. You're on the podcast, though, just by saying that. <laughs> so um, he's, he's, uh, he's preaching, and he talks about it raining really, really hard, but the people don't move. Like, they just stand out in the rain. And I know, like, for me, when it rains, I want to get an umbrella, even if it's just sprinkles, or, you know, make sure I have a rain jacket on and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But, but do you think it's odd or unusual that he would make that observation that even, you know, the English folk are standing out in the rain willing to listen to a sermon? Is that, do you, is that from, from, your, from your perspective, do you think that would be an unusual observation or does it kind of like, or do you see like a contrast there? Like, it's raining, I've noticed the English... They, they, it doesn't bother them when, they, when it rains. You know, they'll just be talking, whatever. So is that is that common, or is the fact, or is there something there? What do you, what would you think? Just kind of firsthand. That that's interesting. Yeah, in other contexts, again, a, a classic English thing would be, you know, if it's a bank holiday, we're going to have a barbecue, <laughs> and inevitably it'll be raining, but people will still barbecue under an umbrella and hammering rain, okay. kind of thing. 
In terms of listening to a sermon, I can't imagine many places where that would happen and people wouldn't just go and shelter yeah. in the rain. So potentially, yeah, there is something yeah. in that. <laughs> well, I found it just interesting. Like, they didn't move. Like, they were unbothered by the rain. Yeah. And, and a lot of times it would say, like, it'd be a hard rain, he would, he would write. So, like, the willingness of people, mm. like, the hungriness of people. Yeah. The hunger of people. They're, they're like, they, something is, is happening there. And, and I'm, there are different definitions of revival, but I think, you know, my definition of a, of a true revival is, and I think there are plenty of other scholars who would echo this, or I would echo them, <laughs> um, is, you know, there's a um, significant amount of conversions that are condensed to a short amount of time. Yeah. You know, like that seems to be like a revival. To, you know, but but this thing about the Methodist revival and the evangelical revival, and then the Great Awakening even, is that it happened over decades, and the Methodist movement in the midst of all of this, it, it is is fueled by largely uh, a man who pre- preached three to five times a day, uh, who inspired other preachers to do the same, and to like never like just don't doesn't matter like he just keep on going like the energy was there and there were times where he would be like on his it seems like he was on his deathbed and he would be like well I've got to preach today they're the society they're, they're wanting a sermon so i got to preach um, he had a fever one one winter and it sounded like the flu or a variation or something like the flu and he had it he, he wrote about it for like two weeks and he preached every day in the midst of all of that like he wouldn't get any sleep Nothing, and he had a fever, and his stomach was messed up, and he would complain and write about complaining, but he was right about it. But yet, he would, he would preach three to five times a day. Mm. I find that fascinating. Um, so the weather and him and John Wesley preaching three to five times a day is very interesting. Um, and then the other thing that struck me are the intense moments of conversions, and people. He said like people would fall out like they were dead. So. They would just be listening to a sermon, and all I can, you know, I have the horrible perspective, not horrible, but a, a very, uh, uh, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? Not tainted, um, fuzzy kind of picture, like a different image. When I'm, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking of tele, tele-evangelist, uh, okay. like big mega church, and there's nothing wrong with, yeah. I'm not saying that, but like I, like I can just see like the big, like the TV, like Benny Hinn or something like that, he's like, Slapping people with his yeah. his, uh, his coat, and they're like falling out. You know that kind of Pentecostal, uh, charismatic, like extreme charismatic expression. And no, I've been and I've been a part of services like that in different traditions. And and, and you and you just cannot deny the presence of God in those moments. So like I'm trying to imagine this in 18th century how how this would have played out when he's talking about people just falling out. And like he says, like they fall like lightning, so that's pretty quick. And they like they might convulse, or they might. Um... Hey, Rob. Don't get me in there. All right. Well, you just did it, so there you go. <laughs> that's all it takes. So, um, and they'd fall out, and uh, they 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 might convulse, or they might just. There were pre- they, he he wrote a lot about presence of demonic spirits and he'd go to people's houses and they would, I mean like this is stuff you'd see on a 
you know, scary movie. Mm. Like, really freaky kind of stuff, like exorcism type stuff, like it, like Cabin in the Woods type stuff, like really weird stuff. And his response most of the time, either during a sermon or going to somebody's houses, they would just pray. And they would not give up, he said, until, like, they wouldn't give up in prayer until God did something. And I just find that, I find that very fascinating. And... I mean, he knew like something was going to give in that person, uh, you know. And they were praying, you know. He was, and he was. They were praying for, for for them that they would know that know the Lord's love and, and peace and everything. So, yeah, come on in, or not? Yeah. Okay. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, please. Um, so, I don't know if you know this, but so, do you think the majority of those people w- were? you know, completely unchurched, non-Christians? Or was this like, um, you know, in a time where nearly everybody in England would have been Christian, but maybe, you know, like Anglican, and he was like, you know, preaching a new message that breathed like more of the Holy Spirit into existing? No, that's a good question. Christians. Um, because the, the assumption is that, you know, most everybody that's born in England will be baptized in the Church of England, most most people. But there were, in this in the 18, 18th century, you had different uh, sects of um, Christianity kind of unfolding as well. You had the Moravians, you had Baptists, you know, you had Puritans, uh, well, not Puritans, you had the, the effects of Puritans. Um, and so you had Presbyterian and, and Congregationalists, you, know, you had all of those kind of mix in there. But also there were, he would, he would talk about believers and unbelievers. Okay. But for him, I, th- I think Wesley would consider a believer and unbeliever is someone who's not been... Yeah, come on in. This is the man you need. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, just, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, come on, sit down. And so I think for unbeliever and believer, I think he would really... I think for his, in his mind, he would kind of understand them as awakened or unawakened. Or, or, and, and, what, and what Wesley wanted was for everyone to have a Christian experience. Now, he gets that from the, his Puritan heritage, the Christian experience. But what Wesley wanted for everyone to experience was assurance of salvation. He didn't want them to really, and he wanted everybody to feel the love of God, the, the forgiveness mm-hmm. of sin. And, and so for, for someone who was a believer, he would, I would say he would, he would assume that they have had some sort of an experience. And for an unbeliever, they may not have had that experience mm-hmm. yet. Though they, but he, he does talk about people um, being true atheists. And sometimes he considers, he's, he's, he borderlines people saying, like, if they're a deist, he would almost assume that they're atheist. And so he does talk about true atheists as well in his writings. Um, but that I've always wondered that too. Like, what... what were there were there true unbelievers? Were there true non Christians? And and there were, but the assumption was that most people were were born into the Church of England and baptized in it as well. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, let me introduce a couple more folks that have just popped in here. Um, so to my left and yeah, <laughs> we have James here. And uh, James, you want to say hey? Hello! <laughs> there you go. You're famous now. Uh, 
The, Very good. A podcast can reach millions of people. Mine reaches about a dozen. So. <laughs> <laughs> On a good week. On a good week. <laughs> and that's usually my mom, my dad, and my mom. <laughs> so that's half, a dozen, half of them right there. Uh, and then we have Alfred over here yep. um, sitting in the other in a chair to my right. Hello, Jonathan's immediate family. <laughs> I told you, Mom, they're real. <laughs> uh, so, conversation is just uh, Methodist revival, um, just the marks of a revival from from what I'm reading. So, basically, if you want to just chime in at any point, and we won't take too much time, uh, much longer, maybe. 10 or 15 minutes. I'll like say. Uh, but if you have a question or a comment or whatever, just feel free to just jump in. Yeah. So I've talked about two things so far is the weather that John Wesley writes about, which is interesting, that he would preach these sermons three to five times a day and he would be in the, in he, and the people would just continue to listen to the message no matter what. Pull up a chair, Pete. I can't. I just need to whisper something to James, that's all. That's okay. It's just going to be on a podcast. That's, that's all right. Oh, cool. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> You're on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's it. Sorry, guys. I've got a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. Okay. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, thanks for coming by, guys. Anytime. Um, so talk about weather. Wesley talks about people. It was raining really hard and they're being out and they're outside, but they would continue to listen to the sermon. Just, so I found that interesting. And then I talked about him preaching three to five times a day yeah. for decades. Yeah. And I just find that just fascinating. Yeah. The stamina. Yeah. They can't have been long sermons. Yeah. Yeah. There's some that are, they're, if you read them, they're like, it takes me you know, several, 30, 45 minutes sometimes just to oh, read wow. through. Because he's very thorough. Yeah. He steals a lot of information yeah. from folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, not steals. He he used, He's very influenced by a lot of uh, theologians and a lot of other yeah. Yeah. disciplines and whatnot. So Which he would, he pulls that all in. I'm deeply worried about any Christian that isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like my my simple readings of the the revivalist sort of period, or I don't know what you want to call it, mm. movement, probably movement. But um, you know, hearing. Like him on on the on the sh- in the ships um, on that vessel, hearing the Moravians singing, mm-hmm. and that that kind of living out of Christian faith, that sort of sense of being new a new people, mm-hmm. new creation, like transformed, and I think like maybe that was why he was so convicted to share uh, and proclaim um, and share it with everyone across the Britain. It's interesting because I've, I've been writing. I wrote an essay last year on um, on the Methodist revivalist mm-hmm. movement and and the historical perspectives of of um, lecturers who come to it and go, James, they wrote my feedback. You're talking about fairies. I was like, hang on a minute. Um, this is a work <laughs> of the spirit. There was a lot of there was conversion. There was change in people's lives. Surely that is an historical. There's there's Fact, fact there that there was a change in people mm-hmm. and um, and the way that it moved through you know different like across um, I mean I suppose he was sort of arguing that it, he was arguing perhaps that the social political 
unrest at that time was it was it was fruitful soil yeah uh, for this message to be proclaimed yeah and it was giving this message that that was at the right time but it's sort of denying the spirit's movement mm-hmm. um, and yeah. action through what the Wesleys and and others because um, there was also was there an, there was another preacher George Whitfield George Whitfield was known um, and then he had some, you know tons of other lay preachers that were pretty pretty prominent yeah. John Nelson uh, is coming to mind um, that's all that comes to mind right now but yeah. I remember this story someone was telling me about um, Wesley from a chapel like proclaiming to thousands of people mm-hmm. um, in Herefordshire, so not far from where I kind of grew up, and just that kind of insane sense of like field preaching, kind of just speaking and everyone gathering because there was something, you know, there's something happening. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, that sense of crowd that we don't really get now. We've yeah. got like stadiums, we've got you know, maybe big worship gatherings, but the fact that it was so public and yet was like almost welcomed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we think of now in our postmodern world, like how does that, how would people feel, you know, sitting on soapboxes and proclaiming and, or on horseback or down on ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's fascinating, Jonathan. It is. And our, so the new room, um, Methodist, building in, in downtown Bristol. I've gone there a couple of times and uh, what is that um, shopping center called there? Broadmead. Yeah, yeah. So like in that little, like, you know, you're walking around and you, you've got, you know, Giovanni and, you know, like all these fancy name brand, whatever they're called and like all these clothes and in the midst of it is this building that was built in 1740 or 42 or something like that. Yeah. And it's still there. It survived the Second World War and or both, yeah, Second World War, and uh, there was a guy who was field preaching, or he was preaching, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't grasp what he was saying, but I was trying to imagine like, and nobody, and there were very few listeners. There was somebody who had a phone. I think maybe they were doing like a social media live or something, but he, he had a microphone, and you got you got people who are busking and stuff like that, yeah, and yeah. more people are interested in that, and I was too, to be honest, the music they were playing. And this guy's just going, you know, giving it all he's got, feel, you know, preaching. And I have no idea what, what he was saying. I know he was talking about the gospel. He kept saying that, repent, repent, repent. But it's such a foreign word, you know. And yeah. So I, I always imagine, or I wonder, like, what would a 21st century revival look like then? Because I, I, I'm under the impression that 21st century global culture is actually the right soil or a parallel or comparative soil to 18th century England in particular, and, and, and world, but 18th century England because it was very developed, you know. And what you had in 18th century England and, and developing in the, the Western world was you had uh, the Enlightenment that gave people an epistemological kind of new approach to reading and like, Oh wait, I can't like John Locke's uh, human understanding. I think that's what it's called. He, he, he's like you know you, you can have ideas. I think that's what his his uh, philosophical approach was, uh, or was it back the backwards? I might be mixing up some people. No one's fact checking me here, so <laughs> oh, yeah, <there's> <laughs> I'm not fact checking you. Sorry, <laughs> no, that's fine because I'm. It, well, anyways, Enlightenment period. 
you had you had deism, where people believed in a god but not an act of god, basically. Yep. Um, you had the you had quietist movement where people the Moravians really who didn't believe in using any of the ordinances of God. Nothing. They just be like, you just need to wait in silence. Don't preach. Don't pray. Don't read scripture. Don't receive the Lord's Supper. Oh. Nothing until like God just gives you that faith. So like it's just very quietest. They didn't do. They didn't say anything. You had all of these things kind of happening amidst the social, um, the social implica the social things that were happening. You had uh, a, a, a country that was beginning an industrial revolution. You had uh, the gin um, uh, era where, where even kids were drinking. You know, like they were like t you know they were employing kids, and you have all these social factors that are happening. And one of the most prominent one is this idea of, or, or, the, or the, the, the thought of truth, like what is truth, what is true to me, like what, what, can, what is actually real. So you had a philosophical changing of the mind that was happening in the 18th century, and Wesley in the Methodist movement um, was right there in the middle of it in a revival. Mm. And so like you think about 21st century and, and, and the the search for truth, it's even become more, you know, it's secular, it's a secular world we live in now. Very postmodern. So, my truth might be different to your truth, but, you know, and, and everything's relative, everything... Would you say, Jonathan, that that's like, you know, I hear the quadrilateral, you know, the four, you know, the experience coming. Mm -hmm. Is that is that sort of what emerges in like that enlightenment, romantic, you know, romantic, the experience of, in the 19th century, that kind of movement towards the the experience that you know being aware of our emotional that we are people that as well as you know the, the Anglican kind of three stool that's a bit imbalanced. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that that was something that came out of that sort of period of time, or like the Christian experience? Yeah. Itself? Well, it was a uh, it was actually John Wesley. The Christian experience that John Wesley capitalized on was was from his Puritan heritage, his mother, uh, and and his father. They both his father was um, and his grandfather, great grandfather, uh, I think he was a dissenter, um, and, they, and they. But but his father joined the Anglican Church. Uh, he rejoined the Anglican Church. Yeah. He wasn't, and then he was, which was kind of odd because his his father was dissented from the Anglican Church and. 1662, whenever that was, that happened. And then his, his, his mother, Susanna, was heavily influenced by the Puritans. And what the Puritans sought after before, what they, what they, what they worked on was the Christian experience. They, they heavily re, uh, relied on that. And specifically, if you were to, re, to communicate or re, receive the Lord's Supper, you had to give an account of, a, of an experience that you've had mm. in order to... to Go to receive the Lord's yeah. Supper, and so they want. So with the Puritans, yeah, they may, you know, in my opinion, they might have gone way too far, a little in being rigid and and, and holding. But they, but they're you know they again they were holding people accountable, especially the Christian, to have to like strive for that experience with God. So read Scripture, you know, pray, you know, come to hear the sermon, whatever, you know, so you can have that experience, that assurance of salvation. And, and that's where Wesley gets that. And, and, and what happens in the 17th century is that the Christian experience becomes 
too supernatural, I guess, mm. maybe for, for the world. When you know, when you think about the the, the, the great synod of of sixteen sixty two and the changing of uh, the Book of Common Prayer, and you have all of these monumental things happening in England in the seventeenth century, where people were basically happy, they were they're like they were experiencing God, and the church was like, whoa, whoa hold on, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't experience God in the in the church. You need to you need to be faithful. You need to go to these churches. You just need to preach a sermon. Doesn't have to be anything special. Just preach the sermon. And that may be a very, very uh, loose interpretation of, of what I'm understanding it to be, but they were trying. It seemed like they were trying to control people by by uh, quenching the flame or quenching the, the 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 spirit moving there. So maybe that's maybe that's a misinterpretation, but that's sure what I, I understand. Mm-hmm. And so when the Christian experience that Wesley capitalizes on. I say capitalizes like he he understands it and he's like I want everyone to know this. He he takes it and he he begins to make it applicable for all people, not just um, church people. And that's what you get with those like those house groups, those discipleship groups yeah. from like real like intense not well it's intense but like wanting to like really dig in yeah. together. Yeah. Um, like the Christian experience and. Yeah. You know, call each other to confession and yeah, like you mentioned, like the 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 gin and the alcohol and (laughs) all the other kind of sins of the world, and so you've got that like intense, like intentional discipleship going on, which is quite kind of different to the maybe the church structures that Mm. that maybe I don't know what we're like we're striving for today, but the thing for Wesley is that he wanted. Holiness. That's what he saw. That's what, and that's what the Puritans wanted too. But they, they didn't quite. They were just before their time, I think. And so what Wesley did was that he was trying to communicate and create a theological framework of discipleship, using that to reach holiness, but not just individual holiness, but social holiness, so that the entire community was impacted. And so he would write in his journal like with the society meetings or with the, the class meetings, the smaller group meetings, or even the band meetings, which was a smaller, smaller group where they were seeking personal holiness, it was all for the sake of changing the local community where he would write uh, in, in there, like he, he would go to a town and he would say there's a bunch of drunkards and swearers and murderers, and he would like, and these are just people who were out in the streets like making it audibly known that that's who they are. And then he would come back uh, sometime later and he would make an observation knowing like it, you never it, it's a totally different town totally different community and that's what he was wanting he was wanting the social holiness that the, that the world would be literally transformed yeah that's beautiful yeah and um, I do find it interesting as well like the experience stuff in one of the bits of his journal that I remember reading when it was first somebody told me to read it when thinking about some of the weirder charismatic things that happen when people preach. Yeah. And it's fascinating reading his wrestling with some of the weirder experiences that happened when he preached because he just didn't quite understand them and was sort of okay but sort of uneasy with his understanding <laughs> yeah. of what was going on. Yeah. That's what I was saying earlier. Like people would fall out like lightning or he would go to somebody's house and they're literally... Some people were chained or like like strapped to the bed because they're convulsing and like demonic spirit. Their people are talking yeah. in demonic voices. Like this is freaking yeah. stuff. And, and he would he would pr- he would pray. Yeah. Or they would start singing a hymn. Yeah. 
until the per, until yeah. they were released. It yeah. was it's fascinating. Well, um, I hate to cut the conversation short, but I've got to clean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks Thank for you. joining me, guys. Thank I'm glad you. I'm here talking to myself. So um, maybe we'll do it again some other time. Mm-hmm. So thanks for uh, listening into Amongst the Table podcast. Remember to share Amongst the Table for change amongst the world. Goodbye, guys. Oh, I saw the stars in an England sky. They shone bright for me. Is an October's dusk of fiery red as far as the eye could see? Thanks for listening in to Amongst the Table podcast. We hope today's content will provide you and your family and friends uh, with encouragement to share amongst your own table for change amongst the world. Please check out our website at www.amongstthetable.com for more information. Had a front row ticket to a show I've never seen. Well, others waited for years, some eternities. When I looked up on that October's Eve, there they were for me. The song you heard today on the introduction and on the outro was written by me, Jonathan Crabtree, this year upon seeing the stars in England. I don't claim to be a poet or a songwriter or a musician. I just claim to have seen stars in England, and I wrote about them. Hope you enjoyed it.